Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. I'm going to be talking to Kent Fellows, who is an assistant professor of in the Department of Economics at the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, about a new brief he wrote for the C.D. Howe Institute on the economics of the oil sands. And this is really important because it goes against the grain of kind of the popular narrative, but it also uh, accords with what the producers themselves are saying and what, with other, what other economists have been saying, and I think specifically of Kevin Byrne at SMP Global, who's been doing a lot of analysis of this over the years. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Kent, Kent about his paper. Uh, welcome to the interview, Kent. My pleasure. Now, it's not that long ago, probably, you know, I remember the f- debates five, 10 years ago, where the oil sands were described as a high cost marginal producer. Over the period, over that, since that time, the oil sands have driven down their production costs. And now they say they are not a marginal producer, they are a competitive producer. Could you explain what that means and kind of give us an overview of your paper, if you wouldn't mind? Sure. Um, So I'll I'll draw one uh, important distinction at the top here. And and I think there's a difference between talking about new production versus talking about legacy production. So the the producers and and the projects that are already there. And so for the projects that are already there and already producing, um, the distinction is really important between sort of your average cost measures and what I as an economist would call a marginal cost measure or an industry finance, I think they'll call them half cycle versus full cycle. The, the, the nomenclature isn't all that important, but it's, it's what we're talking about. And that is what's the cost to produce an additional barrel from a project that's already set up. So sort of what's your cash cost. And we've got some great data now through um, the government of Alberta, through the royalty transparency data that we can go through and actually calculate this. So um, skimming over all the calculations and everything, when you when you look at the cost to get a barrel of oil sands bitumen or diluted bitumen to the uh, Western Canada Select Hub in Hardesty, uh, most of the projects are running somewhere between $10 a barrel and $40 a barrel, which uh, so and that's a Canadian dollar. So that actually makes them pretty competitive when you look at some of the behavior of other producers in North America. Now, that's a cash cost, right? Yeah, that's a cash cost. Yeah, that that doesn't include the cost of capital, the cost of overhead. The cost, there's a lot of costs that aren't in there. So let's talk about the, the costs when you include all of the costs. And if you go to, I, I've you know been I've been reporting on the oil sands for years, and uh, I generally go to uh, their investor presentations. What are they telling investors about their their per barrel costs? And right now, their break-evens in West Texas intermediate uh, uh, prices are somewhere between low 30s and $45, which is still a pretty competitive barrel. And particularly, I mean, this explains why 
the uh, you know their their profits uh, and their free cash flow has been so high during period you know when when oil is eighty to hundred dollars a barrel. But yeah, what they're what they're telling. I just want to finish up this thought. What they're telling investors is that between now and twenty twenty seven, they're going to drive those costs down to the break evens down to as low as $25 to $30 in the most economic uh, cases, and somewhere in the low 30s for those that were in the, you know, in the $40, $45 range. That's all. Now, those are really competitive barrels, are they not? Yeah, I mean, that's a very competitive barrel. Um, and, and I think it, it depends on who you think the comparator is, right? Um, so, putting OPEC to the side because they behave a little bit differently when you start comparing that to conventional producers. Um, like you said, it's it's really competitive. Uh, but there's also the issue there when we talk about all-in costs and what that kind of cost accounting is useful for. Um, that's really more useful about thinking about new projects that might be coming online or thinking about the econ economics of, of existing projects. And so I think there's still a huge risk there with sunk capital and, and why we've seen, you know, all this discussion about whether we're going to see an, another massive oil sands project. I'm much more skeptical on that. But for the for the projects that are existing, um, the average cost is an important measure for the industry. But in terms of thinking about continuing production, that marginal cost is even more important than the, than the average cost. So average cost is an important number for them thinking about, you know, what are they paying back for their for their capital um capital investors, but that marginal cost, that cash cost, that's the really critical one to, to see if they're going to continue producing. And, and I think they will. Now, this is an important distinction here, and, and it gets to the heart of your argument. Uh, and it gets to the heart, it, it's, it's rooted in the basic difference between conventional production and oil sands production. So in conventional production, especially with shale, that shale is is the outlier here, but you, you sink a well, you produce the well, event, and if it's a shale well, you have maybe 12 to 18 months of really high production, then you have a big decline, so you have to spend more capital. So conventional production is always spending more capital to drill more wells, and whereas in the oil sands, you sp because the, the resources is identified, you don't have, you can, you're digging it up, or uh, but you don't have to find it. Uh, you don't have to sink new wells. So you spend a lot of capital upfront. You build your plant, you build your infrastructure, you build your roads. Once that's done, the amount of capital that's required to sustain your production is really, really small. And that gives the, because the oil sands are a, a, a low decline resource, that gives them an enormous advantage over produce, conventional producers who have to keep throwing capital at their production all the time to keep their uh, production rates up. Yeah, and and it's I mean it's so it's a it's a catch twenty two that um, they get they the conventional producers have to keep throwing capital at it. The flip side is they can be more nimble on adjusting production, right? If they if they anticipate low demand years or something like that, they can pull back on capital and they're not making that commitment. The oil sands the commitments already made they're in there. Um, an interesting side script to this and something I don't touch on in the paper is. That's partly why we haven't seen the job creation numbers that we might have expected in the oil sands with the most recent sort of boom, or at least coming back up out of that trench, that historically when we've had uh, crude oil booms and you know, we've had new oil sands projects, 
you need people to go up and and do that capital installation. It's not just throwing money at the problem. You need people too. We're not getting this time around because they are just concentrating on that free cash flow. They're not doing a whole lot of expansion because I think uh, even in industry, they're they're sort of skeptical about um, continued demand side growth, and so they're really more interested in farming what they have rather than hunting for more. Right. And this is the difference between a greenfield project, which is a brand spanking new, you have to build everything from scratch, or brownfield expansion, where you're taking projects that you already have, or you're you're maybe increasing production on a project so that your, uh, whether it's your processing plant or your whatever infrastructure, you're already using that. And so you keep your capital costs really low. It's incremental production, but it's very low cost production and very profitable compared to the greenfield. And we're not, I think the forecast for, for the, frankly, for the last two or three years, maybe four years has been very, very little uh, greenfield uh, uh, investment is expected. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's, that's my take on it as well. I mean, we're not, we're not certainly not seeing that um, in, in the data in the cost data, you know, they call it sustaining capital, but there's marginal expansion built into that too, with the existing projects. But that decision about whether to actually go forward with a new project, you know, we remember the discussions on the uh, on the tech project a couple of years ago. It's a huge financial commitment that you're making for a decade or multiple decades. And so I think um, the industry is a little bit more risk averse on that than they used to be. Probably a combination of forecasts on crude oil demand and discussions about policy uncertainty, right? You know, we're talk, we're hearing talk about the uh, oil oil and gas emissions cap. What is that going to look like? Um, and, and what does that mean for continued production? So um, I would expect to see the current producers continue to do those marginal expansions that you mentioned using that sustaining capital or, or adding a little bit more capital to a brownfield. Um, the age of big greenfield ones, well, I, I'm more skeptical on that. I, I usually don't like to do too much guessing about what the future looks like uh, unless I've got more information on that. But uh, my assumption would be that, uh, you know, we might be through with the days of of huge, new, massive oil sands projects, um, but time will tell on that one. So there's two issues that you raised. One is the uh, oil sands competitiveness in a declining demand scenario which uh, all kinds of agencies now like I, the IEA and Bloomberg NEF and you know are, are talking about uh, peak oil demand in 2030. And then we don't know what the decline curve will look like, but but Bloomberg NEF, for instance, thinks that by 2040, uh, uh, road transportation is the big one here because of course uh, the auto industry is switching over to electric vehicles, electric buses, electric trucks. Uh, and so the uh, demand from road transportation is going to decline significantly, they think, after 2030. And in that scenario, and so what you've done is you've modeled the uh, cost of production and the uh, competitiveness within the existing market of the oil sands. What what hasn't been done is, but you take a you take you have a couple of assumptions about it, or you comment about it in your in your paper is the competitiveness in the oil sands as demand declines. How competitive is it, uh, the oil sands, at 95 million barrels a day of global demand, or 75 barrels, or 50, 50 million barrels? We don't know that. Is, is that it, you didn't address that issue, did you? And, and But do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, so I mean, the, the economist in me um, will remind anyone who asks, 
I mean, we, you know, we can't really think about quantity and price separately, right? I mean, it is, it's an equilibrium. It's a global equilibrium. These markets are integrated, not perfectly integrated. You know, WTI doesn't move one for one with Brent. WCS doesn't move one for one with WTI. But as that quantity starts falling, uh, depending on what happens to price, really what I'm trying to do in this paper is, is talk about, okay, if, if we have thoughts on where the price is going to end up, what do the oil sands look like um, in, in that particular case? And so as we get reductions in demand or reductions in quantity demanded, there's an expectation that prices may fall. If they fall, how far do they have to fall before they start hitting the oil sands in terms of continuing production? And that's that $10 to $40 barrel range. There's a couple of, of graphs in the, in the paper that I'm quite pleased with that are basically short run supply graphs for the industry that run from that $10 to $40 a barrel Canadian uh, range. And then if you compare that to um, conventional producers using something like um, the, uh, the, the drill rig counts, you see that conventional production looks like it's going to fall off above that $40 a barrel range, or at least the equivalent, whereas the oil sands keeps going below that. And so I think regardless of how fast we go through this transition and how fast demand falls, um, oil sands are going to hold on longer than most of the North American conventional production. Um, and of course, there's a bunch of other things we could talk about in that, you know, what happens with heavy coming out of Venezuela, what happens with um, refinery tooling downstream. There's a lot you could build into that. But if we just look at the fundamental costs, I think they're still competitive. And then, of course, you've got OPEC, who's not a price taker, who has some influence and has an interest in keeping those prices high. And so we may be viable for a lot longer than sort of the conventional wisdom suggests we might otherwise be. Well, and that's certainly the argument that the oil sands companies themselves make. I mean, they they argue, they don't put it quite this way, but I would argue that they have reached a point where the status quo is very, very profitable for them. And they're very competitive and they, they can look forward it, it, assuming there are no major changes to, to demand for a long time, they're competitive for for a very long time. The the, the problem here is that I, I it's not clear to me, uh, and nobody has ever, I keep coming back to modeling, because until we model what happens when 100 million barrels of a day of supply is chasing 75 million barrels a day of demand, and how you know we might expect OPEC to to respond to that. But then there's another wrinkle in here that, and, and this is, and you kind of alluded to it. And that is that the, uh, all of the oil sands output is exported to the U S and they're exported to markets in the Midwest and to a lesser extent, the U S Gulf coast where refineries have been specially kitted out for heavy crude oil. So the conventional market and the, and the heavy market are two different things They they don't move in, in, necessarily in lockstep, they're not substitutable all the time. And so there's a very good argument that the heavy market is actually contracting. Mexico has said it's going to take 600,000 barrels of, uh, of Mayan heavy uh, out of the market in 2024. Venezuela, uh, we don't know, it, it fell by almost a couple million barrels a day. And, and very not much of that has come back. And it's unlikely that all of it will come back. And 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 also we should remember that many of the Canadian, like Suncor, uh, Synovus, they have their own refineries in the U.S. So they they are part of their own demand. When prices fall, they they may lose it a little bit on the production side. They make it up on the on the refining side. So my point here is that the that modeling this is much more complex 
than simply looking at competitiveness and you know uh and we is are you planning to do any of that competitiveness modeling uh you know the oil sands in a declining market and take into account some of the stuff i've talked about or is somebody else doing that or is somebody else already done it i have never seen it so there is some interesting stuff being done by uh, a couple of academic economists, um, some colleagues of mine and, and some other folks that I'm aware of, um, but it tends to take more of a, a statistical approach rather than sort of a fundamental, what we would call a, a, in economics, a structural approach. And so the difference here is, is, you know, the statistical approach, we're looking at correlations between price series and, and what that can tell us, whereas a structural approach is really thinking about, as I mentioned previously, that equilibrium, that supply and demand equilibrium. So there's lots of statistical stuff on there about how these markets are co-integrated and, and how the prices move. And as you said, they don't move in lockstep, um, but there, there are certainly correlations between the price movements. I tend to think that that work is is not all that um, it, not all that useful in, in the conversation that we're having where you're talking about competitiveness. Whereas I really think we need a structural approach that looks at you know that demand and supply relationship. Because you talk about taking barrels out of demand, um, the flip side of that is okay. What happens to what happens to price, right? I mean, how does that demand curve actually shift? Because if we're pulling that quantity out and that price is falling because of it, you'll have fewer barrels chasing the same amount of market by nature because there won't be money in doing it, right? We're not going to get barrels that cost. 50 and $60 chasing a price that's say 30 or $40. And so really is a question of how fast does that price drop as we get the demand drop and, and what it, what do uh, producers do to chase that? And I think again here, even though you said, you know, we don't have perfect correlation between these heavy and light markets, um, they are still substitutes. They're just not perfect substitutes. So they don't substitute everywhere, but, but we know the demand is related to that. And so there's a question there of what does OPEC do um, and we've seen in the past that they have tried to kill off U.S. shale and more or less succeeded. Um, the oil sands did not become a casualty in that price war, which I think surprised everyone except the oil sands, right? Uh, you know, you're driving those prices down and these guys keep clinging on because they've made that commitment. They're committed to the market. And as long as that price stays above that $10 to $40 Canadian, $10 to $40 Canadian WCS range, they'll hold on. And so I think if you're, if you're OPEC, not that uh, not that the oil sands is a big fly in the ointment. If you consider it a fly in the ointment, it's a fly that's going to be really, really hard to kill. And so that's why I think they're going to hold on longer. I don't know if that means holding on until 2035, holding on to 2040 or holding on to 2050. It really depends on the speed of, of um, transition. And I think all the points that you made are are, are very apt and, and pertinent. I know a lot of the other folks that you talk to, um, that's the information that they're giving. And I, I don't want to contradict that because I think it's very true. But I think as that demand starts to fall, A, the price isn't going to fall as fast as the demand is because OPEC as a cartel with market power is going to take action to try to keep that price high. And B, as they do that, I think the oil sands still do hold on longer than conventional production, even though they're a heavy barrel and not a perfect substitute. Fair enough. And I will, I've said this many times during interviews, and I'll say it again here, is that somebody, and it could be the Canadian Energy Regulator's new uh, economic modeling project, but somebody has to take on this project of, of modeling Canadian oil and gas competitiveness in a declining demand scenario. Yeah. And because and, this and I think we need a few people to do it. I, you know, having one number from the CER would be great, but I'd like to see 
multiple studies with different assumptions so they can do fact checks and reality checks on it. I think you're right. I think this is a, a big hole in the uh, in the policy and, and in the regulatory discourse. And that's where I was going with this, because here we are, uh, our policymakers are being, you know, they're struggling with oil and gas emissions, particularly from the oil sands, which is about 11 to 12 percent of all of total Canadian emissions. We now know th through Kevin Burns' work that emissions have risen from 72 megatons a year in 2017. They're now 80 megatons a year, and they're going to be 90 megatons by 2025, just three years away. And if CC, if carbon capture and storage isn't implemented in a timely fashion, they could they could break beyond 90 megatons a year by 2030. This is a serious issue. Uh, and policies, policymakers are making big decisions in a, basically a, a vacuum. They, we don't have this modeling, and so they're guessing at what might happen and where they should put tens of billions of dollars. And you make a point, and this is where I'm going with this, you make a point that you think the, uh, the uh, uh, carbon pricing regime, so they basically tier the emission, uh, the industrial emitters uh, carbon tax in Alberta, is sufficient to decarbonize and to lower emissions in the oil sands. And I want to discuss that. So could you just lay out your argument for us? Yeah. So um, I, I don't know if I actually use the word sufficient in the paper. If I do, maybe I should rethink that. Um, what I'll say is I think it's targeting the right margin. Um, because, I mean, to oversimplify, you know, if you're thinking about oil and gas, there's two ways to get those emissions down. We can either produce less oil and gas, the extensive margin, or we can reduce the emissions intensity, the intensive margin. And I, I think uh, implicitly or explicitly, there have been some pushes at the federal level that kind of assume that um, the extensive margin will be the one that takes over, that as we put restrictions like a and, and, and carbon policies like a carbon price in place, that sector will produce less crude oil because the inefficient producers will drop off. And we don't see that, right? I mean, they're still very, very lucrative, as you mentioned before, you know, the, the cash flow that they're generating right now, the royalties that they're generating, it's just incredible in the last year based on trend. Um, and so targeting that intensive margin, I think, is the right one to think about, because if you do that properly, you're still getting the economic benefits from, um, from crude oil production, and you're mitigating the environmental costs. So I think tier uh, or even the federal backstop um, is the right kind of tool where you're talking about targeting that margin. Uh, I think the oil and gas emissions cap, if it's done correctly, could help with that. But there's a big question of, of implementing that appropriately. Um, but that's really the, the, the thing I want to get across with this paper on the, on the emissions front is if you're sort of assuming that uh, that industry is just going to go away as we bring in more carbon uh, policies, um, I think you're operating on, on an incorrect assumption. Um, it's going to hold on there. It's it's clinging, you know, in a low price environment, it still keeps going. Um, and so really thinking about how do we incentivize that intensive margin? How do we get something like a carbon capture and storage um, to work at widespread scale? How do we uh, um, further incentivize reductions in the steam oil ratio? That's something that the industry already has an incentive to do, but is something we can do to strengthen that. So really that target of the intensive margin because targeting the extensive margin, you're you're not going to drive these producers out of business. And frankly, I don't know that you want to because there is a big economic benefit. Yeah, there's a cost, but there's also a big benefit in job creation, um, provincial revenues, economic activity, all that stuff. 
Well, I think we should stop talking about job creation because the trends in the industry are very clear. It's lost 40 or 50,000 uh, jobs over the last five or six, so last seven or eight years in Alberta alone. And a lot of it has to do with digitalization of operations. And that's grist for another conversation. But I think the idea of the oil and gas industry as a big job creation machine, we should stop that. It, it's now a mature industry. It's it's being the uh, the companies themselves are are lowering their costs and they're doing a lot of that is is by uh, digitalizing uh, existing jobs. So anyway, but I want to get back to the issue of carbon pricing because uh, you I've interviewed you now probably for the last five years on various parts, you know, applications of carbon pricing. We've talked about the oil sands. And the one issue that I think is doesn't get nearly enough attention, is the output price, uh, output price pricing system that basically gives producers uh, a 80 to 90% discount on their carbon price. And the idea is to prevent carbon leakage. You know, you don't want them to pick up and move someplace else where they, you know, they, they won't have any climate policy. Well, the oil sands ain't going anywhere because there's no place else to go. They already have their sunk costs. They're not, they can't move their, you know, their assets from Northern Alberta to Venezuela. It doesn't work like that. So I don't think the carbon leakage applies here. And one of the ways to, uh, to apply more, uh, in, to provide more incentive to lower emissions quicker is to get rid of an output base, let them take the full price, the full brunt of the carbon price, whether it's $50 or $70 or $170, but let them cope with that and, adju and adjust to that. And, and I, I'm less and less convinced over time that they deserve any discount whatsoever, particularly when they're enjoying the benefits of, of uh, high prices and very, very high profits. So, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I think that's a, a fair argument. It's probably not one that I agree with you on and, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll explain why. So, I mean, if you, if you think about this, you know, we talk, we talk about leakage and we talk about all that. Um, I think if you get rid of the output-based allocations, you will see some leakage. Um, it might not be a net positive because it might end up being that lower carbon sources end up filling that uh, that lack of demand. But I mean, if you or, or that demand, if you pull out the output-based allocation, the export price is going to have to go up, or the margins on on our side of it will fall. Right, and that's that's one side of it. Um, but the flip side is, I think the biggest problem we have with the output-based allocation right now is not even where that where that OBA rate is set at ninety percent. It's uncertainty about the value of the carbon credits that are generated from anyone who beats that that standard. Right? If you come in below that standard, you generate net credits, which are then allowed to trade on the system. Um, but those tend to trade, uh, at least insofar as we can see from the outside, we don't have great data on it, but those tend to trade at a, at a reasonably significant discount to that, that carbon price. Um, in a perfect world, if we were short on credits, you know, you'd get the same value for the credit that you, that you'd have to pay for the carbon tax. Um, and so I think there's a question there of, of building some certainty into that market. I think when you start thinking about getting rid of the OBA rates, there is a question there, okay, which industries need them and why do they need them? But also talk about at a national level, the Alberta versus other provinces and in particular Quebec, right? I mean, they have a cap and trade system. 
they do get a free allocation of credits. It's basically the same idea on paper. And so as we talk about equivalence there, you know, if you're going to do something like this in Alberta and, and uh, you want to be treating these provinces equitably, then there's a question of, okay, well, how do we deal with, with Quebec? Because that's a tougher conversation to have because of the linkages with California. And I know that gets out of the, out of the oil sands, which is the market that you're particularly interested in. Um, but I think you do have to think about how to treat different industries equitably on this. Um, and there is modeling behind this that they've done at Environment and Climate Change Canada on some of these impacts. And so I'm still a fan of the tier system because I think it targets the right margin. It targets that that uh, intensive margin, trying to get the emissions intensity down rather than targeting the extensive margin. Um, and it's easy to have this conversation right now when the free cash flow is so high. But if we get that price drop and, and we have prices closer to those average costs, um, now you are directly hurting the shareholders in a big way um, and, and, and directly hurting the industry. So, I mean, it's an open question and I know I'm not going to convince you, but I'm not sure you're going to convince me either. Well, okay. So uh, I'm okay with lowering the, the, uh, the producer's margins. Uh, there's credible uh, analysis from, uh, from research firms like Wood McKenzie which is a big supplier of, you know, the big consultant to the oil and gas industry. They have plenty of uh, clients in the oil, in the oil sands. I mean, these, this is not, you know, you're uh, some sort of lefty leaning uh, think tank. Uh, and Wood McKenzie says very clearly that we're going to be seeing some growth in, uh, in demand uh, during the 2020s. And it's going to be at least till 2030 before electrification of road transportation kicks in and it starts affect destroying demand. So oil and gas companies can expect to have uh, above average prices and they can then they and they can expect to, to generate uh, very, very high profits and free cash flow throughout the 2020s. And their argument is that these companies should use that money to strengthen their balance sheets and begin to invest in low carbon business models, anticipating the demand destruction in the 2030s and 2040s. So assuming that that is true, and I think it's a, a perfectly credible uh, piece of analysis, um, what that means is if we want to lower emissions, the 2020s are the time to get the industry to invest in their own emissions. And, and what has the industry done? The industry has created the Pathways Alliance, net, you know, Oil Sands Net Zero by 2050 Pathways Alliance, which has put together a, a CCU, a carbon capture utilization and storage project. The entire decarbonization plan is $75 billion. The CCUS portion is going to be around $50 billion, and they want governments to kick in $50 billion. So here we are in the position of wanting to, if we, in order to meet climate targets, in order to decarbonize what we now agree is going to be a very long-term competitive industry, and the taxpayer is being asked, it's, it, because the emissions, the uh, carbon pricing system isn't work, isn't lowering emissions quickly enough, not absolute emissions or emissions intensity per barrel, and we're going to be asked to kick in another fifty billion dollars uh, when the companies are perfectly capable of financing this themselves. That's my that's my argument. I mean this and and I so what's your take on that? Yeah, so I'll I'll uh, putting on my academic economist hat. Um I mean it makes perfect sense to me that they that they lobby this way. Um you know, firms, oil sands firms, any firm, they exist to generate profit if you're the cynical economist the way I am. So they're going to lobby for things that help them generate profit. Um 
do we do we have to capitulate to that and provide them with the subsidy? No, not necessarily, unless there's some reason to make sense. And I'm not convinced that this does solve a market failure or regulatory failure or something like that. So I think we're probably on the same side of, you know, okay, you're making these great free cash flows. Um, do you actually need the taxpayer to step in and help you with this? There's a good argument that no, you don't, not necessarily. Um, the flip side of that is there is still significant policy uncertainty in this space. You know, we we don't know what this oil and gas emissions cap is going to look like specifically. And so I get that the industry um, is really concerned about stranded assets here. So, I mean, if you bring in a CCUS technology or some other technology to reduce emissions, but it doesn't eliminate all of your emissions, it doesn't go to 100%, and there's a particularly stringent cap brought in, it may end up being that the only way you can meet that cap is to cut production. Well, now you've made an investment in something that was supposed to help you continue lower carbon production, but you're faced with another regulatory policy that's going to lead to you having to cut production. And so you're not getting the full economic benefit out of that investment. So that is those are sort of the two sides and how you navigate that. I'm not entirely sure. I know colleagues of mine have talked about contracts for differences on some of these things or forward contracts on decarbonization. I think that may be a really, really good way to go. It's got a high administrative burden, but there aren't that many oil sands producers so negotiating those might not be a huge uh, a huge problem on that and that actually does commit both the industry and the government to a specific course of action and i think that's the side that we're missing is right now we're expecting a commitment from one but not necessarily a commitment from the other and i think this has to be a co-commitment it has to be a partnership on something like this the carbon price no i mean the government can commit to that and that's fine but uh if you want capital investment to help with decarbonization in a big way. I think we really do need to solve that holdup problem. And so you need a commitment on both sides. Um, really quickly, going back to the point on, on tier and the output-based allocations, um, my big concern with, getting, with, with eliminating those output-based allocations is, are you actually going to incentivize more carbon reduction? Are you going to incentivize reducing emissions? Or are you now just reappropriating some of that free cash flow? Um, and if you think the taxpayers deserve a higher chunk of that profit, we should be doing that through the royalty system, not through ad hoc taxes or something like that. So that's that's sort of where I am on it. Um, but I completely respect your your opinion. You know, reducing the OBA rate would be another way to go on that. And and let me make a, another point here in that in that argument. I in my I wrote a book in 2019 called uh, the, the New Alberta Advantage: Future of the Technology Policy and the Future of the Oil Sands. And in it, I told the story about how five oil sand CEOs and five environmental group CEO uh, executive directors got together in late 2014, 2015, and and did a handshake deal around climate policy and no production for no production cuts. Uh, and I'll, I'll just kind of keep this brief. My, my point here is that the oil sand CEOs of the biggest companies, including CNRL and Suncor and Synovus, they were at the table. They've known for a long time that this was coming. And the amount of decarbonization, the lowering of emissions that happened between 2015 and 2022 is pretty minimal. And a lot of it was not aimed specifically at emissions reductions, it was aimed at increasing efficiencies to lower costs. Now, fine, that's wonderful. The lower the emissions intensity was a side benefit, good on you. But, but the amount of actual activity designed specifically to lower emissions, knowing full well that this was going to be an issue going forward into the future was dismal. 
they prioritized profits and returns to shareholders in the form of dividends and, and share buybacks over their obligations and their existing agreement to lower emissions. And I don't think it's fair now that the, to ask the, the taxpayer to take up a, a, a bigger chunk of that, that capital burden because the oil sands companies dithered and dragged their feet and had other priorities over the last seven years or 10 years, whatever you want. And so that's my argument. Now, that's not an economic argument. You're an economist, and I, I get that. I, I, we're, we're delving into the realm of, of political science here. But still, it gets to the point of, uh, it does have an economic component, which is that how do you arrive at the uh, the relative burdens, the relative investments that the public versus the company should make? And I yeah. would argue that the, the companies the companies are more culpable and responsible for their emissions than we're maybe have been arguing to date. No, I, I mean, I think that's a really valid point. And, and I, I appreciate the out you gave me that, you know, this is an ethical argument, not necessarily an economics one that's, you know, where the dismal science and everything. But I think uh, that brings me back full circle that if you're thinking about policies to incentivize reduction in emissions, um, the ones that are going to work are the ones that make it more profitable for the industry to reduce emissions than for the industry to not reduce emissions, right? And that's why something like carbon pricing is a policy that is that is um, preferred by most environment and, and energy economists because it makes it more profitable to reduce the emissions. You avoid the tax by reducing the emissions or in the case of uh, an oil sands producer that can, can get on the right side of that uh, OBA rate, you're actually generating um, additional revenue, right? I mean, you're, you're generating more credits than you're paying in tax, so you get a benefit from that. Um, and, and where that line is, is not overly consequential if we're thinking about the incentive, because at the margin, $50 a ton is $50 a ton. Um, you know, if you move the OBA rate, you can affect the averages and, and that changes the, the cash flow relationship. Um, and so that's definitely something you can look at. But at the margin in terms of, of producing that, that profit based incentive for reducing emissions, $50 a ton is $50 a ton. And I think as we go forward on this and, and, uh, and we talk about um, different policies that might augment that, um, it's important to remember that, that yes, okay, this needs to be profitable for industry or, or phrased more articulately, it needs to be more profitable for them to take action than for them to not take action. And so contracts for differences can factor into that, an emissions cap potentially could factor into that if it's structured right, and tier or the federal backstop can factor into that as well. But yeah, I, I think we're completely on the same page there. Um, uh, I won't professionally comment on whether it's fair or not, because an economist should rarely be telling you authoritatively whether something is fair. Uh, but I will say, yeah, I think, I mean, I'll repeat it because it bears repeating. For a carbon policy to work, it's got to be more profitable to take action than to not take action. And, and I want to throw another uh, angle in here. And again, it has an economic component, but it's not necessarily germane to, to, to your debate. But, but it comes around the CCUS project that the Pathways Alliance is proposing. And it is basically a, a big a CO2 pipeline that'll be a, like a backbone, right? It'll come down from the, the furthest project north and it'll come down. Uh, all of the different projects can build feeders into the CO2 pipeline. And then it'll it'll terminate someplace uh, near Cold Lake, Alberta, over in the northeast. And that's where it'll be sequestered, uh, stored underground. Here's the problem with that. By taking it, by choosing the route that's most convenient for the oil sands producers, 
that makes that infrastructure less available for other reasons for other economic purposes so for, for example what you see and china is a good example captured co2 is now becoming a big feedstock for things like carbon nanotubes and materials and other and other products so if alberta is building the infrastructure to capture enormous amounts of co2 then we should be thinking ahead to is there an industry that can take that captured co2 and turn it into something else that has economic economic benefit, but that's not what's happening here because, of course, the these the oil sands, as you said, they're economic actors. They maximize profit, and they want to do they you know they want to create CCUS the lowest cost per unit for themselves. Not thinking it's not their job to think about public policy issues. It's our job. It's a politician's job. It's a pol but nobody's making these kinds of arguments. And, and so anyway, I just want to throw that out there because this is there's a lot of layers to this onion. And and your paper is one layer, and that's a very important layer. But there's other layers here that need to be unpacked publicly and with good scholarship and good modeling so that we make good policy decisions, which, in my opinion, we are not making good policy decisions at the moment. So I'll, I'll leave you with the final comment to respond to that. No, that's great. And it actually gives me an opportunity to talk about one of my other favorite subjects, which is um, the lack of coordination on transportation uh, and trade infrastructure in Canada, right? And I think this is a perfect example of that when we talk about a carbon pipeline. And if you're if you've got sort of a um, uh, I hesitate to use the phrase, but but the economics phrase would be like a social planner dealing with this, or or a government policymaker, someone who's interested in in um, uh, overall social welfare and, and the welfare of the provinces in the country, you might be placing that infrastructure in a very different way than if you leave it up to one specific sector to do. And I think you're absolutely right. I, I don't think we can blame the oil sands for, you know, thinking about their own best interests. That's what they do. This is why these firms are set up, right? Um, they're set up to make decisions on behalf of the shareholders. So uh, I would like to see not just on, on the carbon front, but it also as we have conversations uh, even more broadly about things like electrification or um, new methods of low carbon transportation, all that stuff. I mean, the, the simple point, but it's a big idea, is we need way more coordination between municipalities, indigenous governments, indigenous communities, uh, provincial governments, and the federal government on how to set up this transportation and trade infrastructure so that we're getting the biggest bang for our buck. And that might um, require a little bit of public money going to some of these things, but only if the public is going to get a benefit from that as well. So I think we're exactly on the same page there. We need better coordination on this stuff to make sure that we are thinking about the future and thinking about multiple industries at the same time. That's the kind of thing a government and public policymaking is there to do. And I think this is a great example of where it's, it's potentially not being done correctly. Well, I can't let you go then with asking without asking you another question. I mean, there's been a lot of there's a, been a, a, a an increase in attention amongst academics, amongst policymakers uh, about industrial strategy and policy, modern industrial strategy and policy, not the old you know grow a, a, a national champion, protect it with tariffs, let it grow you know, and and let it grow in a shelf you know in a sheltered environment. But rather taking a strategic approach to industrial, you know, as the world, as the, the global economy restructures around things like batteries and electric vehicles and wind and solar and so on, there are industrial opportunities here. 
And so the new modern approach to this is to get shareholders and government and policymakers and academics like yourself together in collaboration, plan out a strategy around these kinds of infrastructures, then decide what kind of industrial policy you need at both the federal level and at the, and the, the provincial level to then put implement it, build industrial clusters around things like CCUS and take advantage of the linked opportunities and forward linkages, backward linkages, technology linkages, and make and get the maximum economic benefit out of these kinds of infrastructure projects as we you know go into this new uh, global economy. And and that seems is industrial policy and strategy showing up on your radar. You're an economist, you're, you deal with these kinds of issues all the time. Uh, and and do, do you, I assume that you would agree with that basic approach? Yeah, no, it's definitely on my radar. Um, and I think the really critical distinction here is, like so many of these things, there's good industrial policy that's effective and bad industrial policy that's not effective. And I don't think we should let the failures on the bad side um, scare us too much away from it because we'll lose the the ability to do good and effective industrial policy. And so thinking about, you know, the history of Alberta in, in recent years, we got a couple of big examples on one side and a couple of big examples on the other side, right? So I, I think you've interviewed people about the, the Sturgeon refinery. I would say that's probably an example of where things have not been done all that effectively. That has cost the province a lot. Uh, it has not delivered sort of the economic and social returns that we'd hoped it would. On the flip side, something like the Renewable Energy Credit Program, right? That has worked pretty effectively. Um, the provinces, I believe, actually made money off that. Um, um, it's not a hat. It's not something that I look at directly, but that's my understanding. And so, when we think about where there are market failures, how we might solve those market failures, where there are adjustments that we can make, I don't think we should be afraid of industrial policy. But um, anytime you're doing it, we've got to do due diligence to make sure we're getting it right because we are spending public money on these things. And so there's a, a responsibility among policymakers to go out, find the facts they need to find and make those decisions carefully and responsibly when it's taxpayer money. And that gets me back. I'm going to close our interview with a, another plug for more modeling. Because in order to do that, you need analysis, you need modeling, and we haven't got nearly enough of it here in this country, particularly in Alberta. So, Kent, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating discussion, and we'll look forward to the next one. As always, my pleasure. Thank you.